Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And now as we seek to hear it preached, we pray for you to help us through the Spirit to understand, to hear your voice in the preaching of your word. May we come away with hearts that are ready to, to listen and to uh, obey, to be shaped by whatever you are saying to us through the preaching of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's text is addressed directly at rich people, and it has some pretty harsh things to say. There's no call to repentance. There's no word of grace. All you're going to find in this morning's passage is disapproval and condemnation. It's really not your typical New Testament text. It actually reads more like an Old Testament prophetic passage. Because usually when you're in a New Testament epistle, it's addressed to the church. So it means it's written to Christians. So even if there is a harsh warning not to love your money or a warning not to make an idol out of your riches, at least there's a word of encouragement or a call to repentance. But here in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, there's nothing of the sort. And that's because these words are not addressed directly to the church. James is actually speaking over his Christian audience. Commentators all say that the rich that James has in view here are not rich Christians in the church. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 10, he was talking to rich Christians in the church. And also, um, at the end of chapter 4, like we saw last week, he was addressing rich Christians who were of the wealthier merchant class. But here in chapter 5, James turns his attention outside of the church to the wealthy first century landowners who were notorious for exploiting their laborers. And, in, and many in James's audience were those very laborers, the victims of these oppressors. He mentioned this oppression back in chapter 2. If you recall, there, there he was just simply baffled that his audience would show partiality towards the rich, towards the very ones who were oppressing them. Listen again to chapter 2, verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So likewise, the rich here in our text are these same non-believers who were oppressing and accusing Christians and blaspheming the name of Christ. Now, you might be wondering, why would James shift gears and suddenly begin to address non-Christians in a letter that was written to Christians that would have been read when the church assembled. Did he really expect his Christian audience to, to go and pass along these words of condemnation to their antagonistic landlords who were oppressing them? No, I, I don't think there was an expectation that they would go and do that. Now, James is actually drawing from a deep tradition of prophetic literature. And like an Old Testament prophet, he is proclaiming in this passage a woe to the rich. You see, if you just read prophetic books like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you're going to come across whole chapters that are dedicated to proclaiming woe to Assyria, woe to Egypt, woe to Babylon. 
But of course, those prophetic books were written to Israel, to Israelites, and not to the rulers of those various nations or their citizens. And there was really no expectation that an Assyrian or Egyptian or Babylonian would actually pick up and read that prophecy. That prophetic woe, that condemnation written about some group outside of the covenant community of God was written so that God's people would hear and hear two things in particular. First, they would hear a word of comfort knowing that God will bring a just vengeance upon their oppressors. And second, they would hear a word of warning not to emulate or to envy the very ones who are oppressing them, to not show them partiality. And that's what we have here in our text in chapter 5. We have a word addressed to those outside of the church so that primarily those within the church would hear a word of comfort regarding God's vengeance and a word of warning concerning our tendency to envy the rich and to emulate them in their wicked ways. Now, church, I'm explaining all of this to you because as I do my best to faithfully preach this text, just know that I'm going to be speaking over you, in a sense, as I address those outside of the church, outside of our community. But in this prophetic manner, you should understand that this is still a word for you. You may not be the direct audience, but you're going to find that what this passage has to say is extremely relevant for all of us. You see, nowadays, you're going to hear so much talk in news reports or in cultural analysis about the rise of a new popularism over old concepts like socialism or Marxism. We live in this cultural moment where so many people see the world as dichotomously divided between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, between the oppressors and the oppressed. That's how many would try to explain all of the problems we face in society. Everything is viewed through this oppression matrix, through this power struggle. And so that means those in power, which runs parallel with those who have wealth, they are assumed to be the oppressors. Now, they may not be conscious of all the ways in which they are oppressing others. They might plead ignorance, but they are oppressors nonetheless. That would be the Marxist worldview. And redemption within this worldview is achieved when you can destabilize that hegemony of power. The entire system that serves to protect the interests of the oppressors, it needs to be overturned. That would be the underlying worldview of many popular movements today. Now, what we're going to see in today's passage is an acknowledgement that the possession of wealth does convey to you a degree of power. But from the biblical worldview, being rich and having power is not necessarily wrong or evil. It doesn't automatically make you an oppressor. Now, of course, it could, and that's the emphasis of today's text, where the rich and powerful have become oppressors and how they really have it coming. But the biblical worldview is not the Marxist worldview. Having wealth and power is not the problem. Hoarding wealth and power for selfish gain, now that 
is the problem. And the Christian answer is to wield whatever amount of wealth that you have and whatever degree of power you hold towards the goal of serving those who are poor and marginalized around you. So, church, as we consider four unique woes, prophetic woes, directed at the unrighteous rich in the world, let's be sure that we still listen and discern what we have to learn from this as followers of Christ. So, the first prophetic woe that is issued is a woe to those who selfishly hoard their riches. That's our first point. We're talking about those who accumulate wealth and power with no concern for how it might be employed to benefit more than just yourself or your own family. This woe begins in verse 1. Let me read it again. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, the reason commentators think that the you rich here is addressing you unrighteous rich, you oppressive rich out there outside of the church, is because of these miseries that are coming upon them. The only other instance of that word is found in, um, found in the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 16, where it describes what lies at the end of the path for unrighteous sinners, for non-believers. So we're talking about a final reckoning on a final day of judgment. That's what's coming down the line for these unrighteous landowners. And their reaction when that day comes is quite telling. Weeping and howling are common reactions that you find in prophetic literature. That's how the wicked react when they hear about the day of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail! For the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So James is using very familiar prophetic language to convey that this is a prophetic woe to the rich regarding their coming judgment. Now, let's see why the unrighteous rich are deserving of such misery and judgment. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Notice, how it's because of their selfish penchant for hoarding. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You see, in the ancient world, wealth was not measured by property value, or by uh, investment portfolios. No, a person's wealth primarily consisted of three things. Harvested grain, clothing, and either precious stones or jewels. So, James is describing a scenario where wealth has been hoarded, stockpiled to excess, to the point that the harvested grain has rotted, the clothing has been moth-eaten, and the gold and silver have corroded. Again, as we've noticed in the book, James likes to borrow from Jesus' teaching, especially from his Sermon on the Mount. And we hear, hear echoes of Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 6 to not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. Both James and Jesus are both saying that if you don't use your treasure to do good in this world, which of course is God's intent, but instead you hoard it up for yourself, then your treasures will eventually corrode and go away. The moth is nature's way of corroding treasure. Rust is time's way of doing the same thing. And the thief is humanity's way to corrode and take away. All three taken together represent the fleeting nature of worldly wealth when it is not put to its intended use. You know, there's an old Aesop's fable about a miser that conveys a very similar point. As the story goes, this miser buried all his gold at the foot of a tree. Now, he never spent it. He never put it to good use. All he would do is just visit that hiding spot every day to admire his gold coins. Well, a thief picked up on his, his pattern and figured out what this miser was doing. And so one night he dug up the hidden treasure and he made off with it. Well, the next day when the miser discovered all of his missing gold, he was overcome with grief. He, he tore his clothes and he cried out in pain. Well, the passerby heard his cries and came over and inquired about what happened. When he learned that this miser had no use for his money but to hoard it all away, well, he handed the man some stones and he said, here you go, put these stones in the hole and cover it back up. How are they any different than your gold coins? That's the point. If you don't put your money to good use, if you just hoard it away, then it's as good as a bunch of stones. It's worth as much. Look, friends, if you have wealth, it's because God gave it to you for a good reason. He designed gold not to rust, but to help the poor. He designed garments not for feeding moths, but for clothing the naked. But if you hoard that wealth of yours, then you waste that wealth of yours. It will corrode, it will rot, it will rust and go away. Look back at verse 3 with me and notice how corroded treasures, how rotted and rusted riches will one day serve as evidence against the unrighteous rich. Their corrosion, that's referring to the corrosion of your treasure, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. In other words, if your life concludes with a bunch of corroded treasure laid up in your storehouse or in your bank account, then at the final judgment, their corrosion will serve as evidence of your misuse, of your selfish stewardship. You would have failed to use earthly riches for godly purposes. Now notice the emphasis here at the end of verse 3 on how the unrighteous rich are doing all of this hoarding in the last days. Now the last days there is, is not a reference to their retirement years, but rather to the idea that we are all now living in the last days. From a New Testament perspective, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ mark the end of one age and the beginning of another. And so we are now living in the last days we are living in the end of ages. 
And the next event to mark the final end will be the return of King Jesus. That's what comes next, and that could come at any time. And that's what James says a little later. If you look down in verses 8 to 9, he says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, The judge is standing at the door. And so, according to James, it is utter foolishness to be hoarding your wealth when it's so clear that we are now living in the last days. I mean, just imagine if a billionaire was told that he only had a few days to live and that all the money that he had set aside for a rainy day would go to waste if it wasn't spent and invested now. Wouldn't you agree that it would be utter foolishness and just downright evil if he were to leave his billions stored away in a vault to simply rot? Well, according to James, our lives are like a mist that quickly vanishes. And the return of Christ is at hand. And so that means everyone should be living as if these were our last days, as if the end of time could come at any time. So church, as we've explained already, this text is primarily a woe to the unrighteous rich outside of the covenant community of God. It is a condemnation against them for hoarding wealth and wasting wealth but by storing up treasures in this life they're really just storing up wrath for the next but this prophetic woe is still a warning to the church a warning to not follow the patterns of this world don't envy or don't emulate their accumulated wealth now I, I know it needs to be said again that the biblical worldview is not condemning having wealth in itself. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong or oppressive to be rich, but it does take issue if your plan is to die rich. There is something wrong to end your life with a hoard of wealth gone to waste. And so I think it's important for us to ask ourselves if we've been living as if these were the last days. In these last days, am I using my God-given wealth and opportunity for God-ordained purposes? Or am I following the pattern of this world? Am I selfishly accumulating wealth with no clear plan or purpose for doing good with it? Take this text as a real warning to not waste the wealth that God has entrusted to you to do good in this life. So the first woe that we have seen here is a woe to those who selfishly hoard their riches. Well, the second woe, the second point, is a woe to those who selfishly defraud others. Those who have not just neglected the needy, but have actively cheated those who are under their power and influence. Listen to verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears, the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here James is proclaiming God's disapproval, God's condemnation for how these wealthy landowners have cheated laborers out of their pay. In those ancient days, in that kind of agrarian economy, most people lived at a bare subsistence level. 
meaning they depended upon a daily wage. They would hire themselves out to rich landowners mowing and, and harvesting the fields, and at the end of the day, they would expect to be compensated for that day's work. The law, would, the Mosaic law, even codified this kind of arrangement in order to protect day laborers. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Well, that must have been what these unrighteous landowners were doing to some within James' audience. They were holding back wages. They were defrauding them. And for that, they were guilty of sin. And the cries, the cries have reached the years of the Lord. Now notice with me in verse 4 how it's the wages that are crying out against the rich. Not the workers. It's the unpaid or, or the underpaid wages that are crying out. And that's fascinating. Because this is not a person, but an inanimate object crying out to the Lord. It's kind of like how in Genesis chapter 4, you read of Abel's blood crying out to the Lord from the ground. In such cases, these cries to the Lord are cries for justice, cries for deliverance. But James says that these cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It could also be translated, the Lord of angel armies. It's a stress on God's almighty power and how he's coming with his army to exact just vengeance on the oppressors of his people. God doesn't take lightly the pain cries of his people. He hears and he will act within his sovereign timing with all of his almighty strength. That is really a word of comfort for God's people. If you are a victim of injustice, if you have suffered under the hands of oppressors, if you have sued for justice but come up short, well then it's time for you to cry out to God and to leave vengeance to Him. As it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let's take comfort in that promise. But you know, this is also a word of warning to any Christian who is in a position of power, particularly if you are in a position to employ the services of others. Just shudder at the thought that the Lord of hosts is coming to exact vengeance upon oppressors, on those who selfishly defraud others, who hold back wages. God forbid that you would ever do the same. Make it your goal that no employee of yours, no worker or laborer under you would ever cry out to you in such a way. So we've seen woes to those who selfishly hoard, to those who selfishly defraud. Well, third, third, my friends, James proclaims a woe to those who selfishly indulge themselves. To those who live in the lap of luxury without a care for those who suffer. Listen to verse 5. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James has in view the unrighteous rich who are living luxuriously and self-indulgently with little concern for the suffering of others. It really brings to mind the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that you can read about in Luke chapter 16. There we're introduced to a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus is describing here a life of self-indulgence. This rich man has unlimited resources at his fingertips and yet he won't lift a finger to help a poor man named Lazarus who laid at his gate every day begging for scraps. Now, I know that there are those who will try to argue for a moral distinction to be made between those in verse 4 who are actively defrauding the poor and, and oppressing them to those in verse 5 who are just simply ignoring the poor, just so caught up in themselves. Of course, it's usually the latter who try to make this argument. They're going to say, look, I know, say what you will about my self-indulgent lifestyle, but at least I never cheated anyone. I never mistreated any of my servants or employees. At least I'm not like those oppressors in verse 4. And I'm sure the rich man in our parable would have argued the same thing. Say what you will about my fine linens and my sumptuous feasts. Sure, I know, I'm guilty of excess. And I didn't do much to improve Lazarus' situation, but at least I didn't cheat him. At least I, I didn't oppress him or make him poor in the first place. But James already reminded us, back in chapter 4, verse 17, that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So the rich man can't take any comfort in the fact that he didn't defraud or oppress the poor because by simply failing to help the poor, Lazarus in particular, he's complicit by a sin of omission, by failing to do the right thing that was before him. So if anyone listening right now is not a Christian, I hope you hear what, J what, Jesus, well, I mean, what James is saying. Yes, he's confronting those who are actively oppressing and defrauding other people. And you would probably join him in, in condemning that kind of behavior. I mean, just thank God you are a decent person and you wouldn't intentionally hurt or cheat anyone, especially if they're poor and needy. But what about all those times that you knew what was the right thing to do? You knew you could have helped someone in need and yet you walked past them, or you just kept on driving through the intersection, or you just blindly turned your eye, that would still be sin, a sin of omission. And you would still be under condemnation, and a day of judgment is still coming. James is not pulling any punches. He wants you to hear this because he wants you to understand. Otherwise, you would just go on indulging yourself in this life not doing anyone any harm, but not doing anyone any good either. Unaware that you're fattening yourself like livestock for a day of slaughter. And that's language that he uses here in verse 5. This day of judgment that's coming will be a day of slaughter. 
So don't let your conscience off the hook by assuming that these prophetic woes are reserved only for those who are actively, intentionally oppressing other people. No, these woes are for anyone who can selfishly indulge themselves while ignoring the cries of the poor. And look, as a Christian, let me be the first to admit that I am just as guilty as you are. It's just as easy for me to walk past those in need as I'm on my way to indulge my own pleasures, to pursue my own passions, to to fulfill my own needs. Like you, I wasn't bothering anyone, I wasn't harming anyone, and yet like you, I too was fattening myself for a day of slaughter. But by the grace of God, I was saved from that slaughter. I was rescued by a Savior who took my place in the slaughter. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this Savior, this man named Jesus, took up his cross, and he bore my sins upon it, including my complicit sins of omission, my failures to help the poor and powerless. I'm only safe from that day of slaughter because I've been rescued by the Lamb of God. And friends, that rescue, that salvation is available to anyone if you would only believe and receive Jesus as the Lamb who was slaughtered in your place. Friends, in the midst of all of these prophetic woes, I I want you to still hear a word of gospel grace. Well, so far we've considered a woe to those who selfishly hoard, to those who selfishly defraud, and to those who selfishly indulge. Well, now in verse 6, James sets his sights back on those who are more active in their mistreatment of other people. This fourth woe is a woe to those who selfishly oppress the righteous. Listen to verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I know it's a bit surprising that James would accuse the rich of not just condemning, but murdering the righteous. Well, homicide is really not out of the question. Persecution against the early Christians could have gotten that violent. But James is probably uh, here thinking more about the practical outcome of all of that cheating and defrauding that wealthy landowners are doing to poor day laborers. If you keep back their wages and and take away gainful employment, then the poor are eventually going to starve. And in that sense, the rich and powerful are murdering the poor and lowly. That's how they're essentially complicit in their death. You know, throughout the history of the church, God's people have suffered under unjust oppression. Sometimes it happens on a large scale through systematic persecution. Other times it's just on an individual level through personal mistreatment and neglect by someone in a position of power. Whatever the case, it is these kinds of prophetic woes against oppressors that have historically sustained the church's perseverance in protest against injustice. 
when James says the righteous does not resist, he's not suggesting that God's people are to respond to oppression and to violence by just simply being doormats. No, he simply means that the righteous don't have to respond to violence with violence. You see, we're living in this cultural moment where there's so much talk about civil disobedience and about the need to protest and to resist those in power, those who have abused their power, whether positionally, politically, or economically. And all of this angst in our society is like a powder keg ready to blow. So many are so frustrated and so convinced that they just have to take matters into their own hands and see to it themselves that justice gets done. They have no God to turn to. They have no higher power who is issuing woes of condemnation upon their oppressors. And so they feel compelled to take power for themselves, responding to power with power, responding to violence with violence. But the church, the church is called to respond in a drastically different way. We can respond to abuses of power with peaceful protest and respond to violence with nonviolent resistance. Why is that? Because we worship a God who we know hears our cries, who issues forth his woes of condemnation, and who promises to bring down his vengeance and his justice upon oppressors in his timing and according to his righteousness. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to see to it for ourselves. That's the hope that is being offered in a biblical sense this morning. That's the word of comfort that we can draw from a prophetic woe that wasn't even directed towards us in the first place. Let's pray, friends. Father, we thank you for this passage. Though we understand that it was written, not directly to us, but to the world, to the unrighteous rich in the world, Lord, we take comfort and we hear your warning. May we respond, O oh Lord, with faithfulness, with perseverance, and with obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.